0: message that is well you're not going to find anyone more qualified to speak on this topic than me that's how I feel I mean maybe maybe you feel the same way about your own experience and in dealing with failure but for me this is easy I can talk about failure maybe the transformation part that's not so straightforward at least it hasn't always felt that way but I wanted to start this morning and by the way I do have a Bible there that I could refer to, but I discovered last night that the pages are all falling out, so it's going to be really embarrassing if I try and flick through. I've got all the scriptures up here, so you'll be able to follow along or read in your own Bible. Anyway, <clears throat> I wanted to start this morning because, um, with a story that, for me, has been very timely. Um, it's something that really speaks, I think, to the problem of failure. Um, and it goes a bit like this. A few weeks ago, the school I work for, I'll remain nameless, uh, had a first 15 that made it to the finals of the Auckland uh, Secondary Schools uh, 1A division, and we lost. We lost after an epic battle. Um, I got a chance to share with the staff at a devotion the Monday morning following about some of my reflections and thoughts on this, on this failure, on this, on this loss. Of course, you know, it's not a failure to get that far in a competition. Uh, it's not a failure to um, have put in so much effort and, and not quite got the win in the end. It's still an incredible achievement. But for those boys that were playing out there on that Saturday, when the final whistle blew, it did feel like failure. And there's no denying that. So I shared with the staff um, at our Monday morning devotion about a, a student um, who had been through that same school, the school I also attended once, and I now teach at. And the student had been the best friend of my younger brother. Now I don't know if you ever kind of wished that your younger siblings and their friends you know, had been more sort of your friends, had been more involved in your life. I don't know if you ever envied your younger siblings' friends, you know, you wanted to sort of be like them, you, you actually looked up to them, rather than the other way around. Um, but that's how it was with this particular friend that my brother had. They were best friends, uh, had been best friends through high school, and this young guy had something that just other young people didn't have, you know, you just didn't see it, it was so rare, it was, it was a really uncommon thing. He was um, an incredible athlete. He was on a sports scholarship and he played rugby primarily and he played it with everything he had. He gave every bit of energy, every bit of passion to the game. He had a Christian faith and it made a huge difference not only to the way he he competed in sports but to the way he lived his life. Uh, He was somebody who was wiser than his years. And, you know, he, was, he wasn't a big guy. I mean, he's, I'm not a big guy. But he, I mean, he was shorter than me, probably weighed less than me. Um, he, he played like a lion. He gave us he gave all. He would never back down. He was fierce on the field. And, I mean, he, you know, he took a hiding some days. He got, he got you know, steamrolled at times. But the way he played on a particular tour to Australia really got his teammates' attention. He was about 16, 17 at the time, I think, and they were touring Australia as the first 15. And there were so many moments in a series of games they played where the chips were down and everyone else was getting disheartened, discouraged. And it just didn't seem like they were ever going to pull it off. But this guy knuckled down, and he rallied the boys, and they played their hearts out. And so the boys gave him the nickname, the War Donkey. Now, there's a bit of a story behind that, but if you've ever heard of some of the Anzac legends, you know the stories of Gallipoli during the First World War when New Zealand and Australian soldiers were in an impossible situation. They knew they were going to be defeated at some point. Uh, Well, there, there there are these incredible tales that have come out of that time. And one of them was a a, a guy called John John Simpson who had a donkey that he used for transporting um, the wounded down to the hospital ships. And so the boys on this tour, this rugby tour, they thought of that story that they'd learned about in history. And they said, that's this guy. This guy's name is Nicky, by the way. Not a good idea to start a story, a sermon with a story like this. <laughs> it makes it a bit harder to keep going. All right. Now, I want you to think about that as I go on and, and look at this passage with you, because I'm going to come back to Mickey's story at the end. Okay. Have I been accidentally hitting that? Have I? whoops. Oh, there we go. Okay. There's the first. Oh, there we are. Right. Okay. We're good. Okay, so here is the passage we're looking at this morning, and I want to be really clear, and I'm going to say this um, in, in in the most uh, sensitive way I possibly can. Um, that this story, and I don't, you know, those of you who know it, I don't want your minds sort of racing ahead here and starting to think um, that this is in some way a veiled reference to uh, anything that's been going on here at, at Summit, um, any of the, the challenges that we as a church have faced, and particularly those who have been um, in leadership there, and you know, this has nothing to do, and I'm just going to say it, it's nothing to do with Brad, okay? This is, this is a totally different issue, and I just want to be really clear about that. Um, we're also not talking about um, individual moral failings of any kind, we're not talking about um, any of that stuff, but I will explain what I mean by this. I just want to, want to get that out there, though, um, in case, you know, your, your, your imagination goes places it's not supposed to. So what we're dealing with here is very different to what's going on, I think, uh, for Brad at the moment. And I I, I just have to say that, you understand. So this is the, the passage I want to read, and I'm going to read it now. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard, but Peter had to wait outside at the door. The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back. Spoke to the servant girl on duty there and brought Peter in. You aren't one of this man's disciples too, uh, sorry. You aren't one of the, uh, the this man's disciples too, are you? Uh, she asked Peter. He replied, "I am not." I'm going to try and read off the screen. It was cold, and the servants and officials stood around a fire they had made to keep warm. Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in synagogues or at the temple, where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded? If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. If I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Peter's second and third denials. That's actually not the verse, that's the heading. (laughs) Meanwhile, Simon Peter was still standing there warming himself. So they asked him, you aren't one of his disciples too, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not one of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him. Didn't I see you with him in the garden? Again, Peter denied it. At that moment, a rooster began to crow. Sorry. Let's get into it, because there are three questions that spring to mind when you look at this passage. Automatically. You know, these are not questions you've got to rack your brains to come up with. These are just obvious things that we ask ourselves. And I think the first is this. Is Peter, and his denial of Jesus, because of cowardice? Is he not brave enough to be a follower of Jesus? It's an obvious question. And maybe, you know, you already think, you have an answer to that? Let's look, though, at its history. I mean, let's go back to Mark uh, chapter 1, verse 18. When Peter and Andrew first follow Jesus, they do so without hesitation. That takes courage. They leave behind their lives, their professions, their families for a time to go on this itinerant ministry following a, an unknown rabbi. If you could even call him a rabbi. He's really a carpenter from a, a backwater in the north of Israel, backwater town. And he's somebody that doesn't have the name recognition. Now, if people have done their research, they know he was descended from David, and uh, in fact, all the prophecies lined up, and he was the Messiah. But they didn't know that. All they had heard was this intriguing message and a demonstration of an otherworldly power. This wasn't your run-of-the-mill experience for a fisherman to be asked by this serious figure who was teaching and, and, and doing uh, and performing you know, things that no one, no one did. Now, the, the, unknowns, the unknown factors there would be enough to put anyone off listening to that invitation from Jesus and, and responding and, and, and going along with him. But they don't. And I think that's the first sign that either Peter is very impulsive, which he could be, as well as uh, being brave, or he's just, he's just brave, he's prepared to do it. He's prepared to go out there and launch out into the unknown and see what this is all about. The, the next, uh, I guess, reference, I think, that helps us understand his, his history and, and particularly this, this theme of courage in Peter's life is in John 6, verses 66 to 68. Now, this is the point, a really low point, it seems, in Jesus' ministry. Everybody is freaking out at the stuff that Jesus is saying, you know, things like, eat my flesh, drink my blood. People are saying to themselves, we didn't sign up to follow a vampire, or whatever this is all about. It sounds like some strange cult, some weird, you know, twisted, um, perverted mind. Or at least if they didn't really think that about Jesus, they didn't like the image that it conjured up. And while they might have known that Jesus was actually nothing like a vampire, and he wasn't some sick, twisted individual who wanted to go around cannibalizing people, it still bothered them that he would talk like this. It's not a particularly attractive or appetizing way of pitching you know, a new movement to the world. Go around saying, you know, you got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. You think of some of those cults in uh, Central America, you know, the, the Kool-Aid ones, where the Kool-Aid was poisoned. Uh, Waco in Texas and um, what was the one, I'm trying to think now, um, anyway, there was another one in, in, in Central America where the Kool-Aid was, was poisoned, and, and all the followers came along, and they drank it, and they, and they died. The name slipped my mind. But anyway, this is not what Jesus was, of course, about. But people were freaked out by it. And so, when it came down to it, who was still prepared to stick with Jesus? Well, the twelve. And in particular, we get from Peter this response. Like, what do you mean, Jesus, you know, am I going to stick with you? And he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? There's no one else. Having encountered you and experienced what it is you have to offer, there's just no way I could ever think about doing anything different again. I can't just go back to fishing as though this never happened. Okay, yeah, you say some weird stuff. But I suspect that there is something incredibly exciting ahead. And so I'll, 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 ride, I'll ride through this rough patch, you know, where people are deserting us, deserting you. I'm going to stick with you. Now that takes courage. It takes courage to do that. When you become a part, of, or when you find yourself in the middle of a very unpopular movement or organization. Two other places John 13, verse 37. When Jesus says to Peter, You're going to, you're going to deny me three times. Right? This, is the, this, is, this is the same evening of the passage we're looking at now, earlier in the evening, though. As I'm sitting around the table at the Last Supper. Jesus says to, to Peter, you're going to deny me three times, and then the rooster's going to cry. Now, just before he, he says that to Peter, as Peter's listening to, to Jesus, you know, warning them, I'm going to be going somewhere you can't follow. Peter says, Lord, why can't I follow you? I will lay down my life for you. Now, talk is cheap. It could be, it could be that he was just full of hot air. He was was prepared to make promises, left, right, and center, but he wasn't going to back them up. Well, if you're thinking that... Oops, that's me. Bumping here. Um, If you think that, go to John 18, verses 10 and 11. Peter takes on a cohort of soldiers. We heard about this last week when Stu was speaking. Cohort of soldiers. I mean, we're talking hundreds. Exactly how many? I mean, it's thought maybe 600. Maybe it was a bit less than that, but we don't know. It's certainly a lot of soldiers, though. The term is in the hundreds. It means in the hundreds. And there's Peter. He's not a soldier by profession, he's a fisherman. With some kind of hand me down sword or some improvised shank or whatever it is that he's made, strapped to his side, ready to take on an entire cohort. Here's the Roman army, and some Jewish soldiers thrown in as well, and he launches out there, swiping like a windmill. And all he comes up with is an air. And that's not even off a soldier, it's off a slave. And then to add insult to injury, Jesus picks the air up, sticks it back on the slave. Here you are saying, I'm laying my life down for you. Look what I'm prepared to do. I'm risking everything. And then you get that backhand from the very person you're trying to, to save. Peter, I think there is no doubt, Peter is not a coward. Not in the conventional sense. I mean, yeah, he's, he's reckless, he's, he's rash. He's not always very, uh, very in his, in his in his planning, if there's any planning at all. But he's ready to give everything. He's ready to give his life up. So, I think to answer this question, is he a coward? No, he's not a coward. He's brave in the passionate, against all odds, headstrong sense of the word. I mean, it's a bit old fashioned to say it, but he's a manly man. He's going to lay his life on the line, he's going to go out swinging. So, he's not a coward. He's uncompromising, he's unflinching, he won't sell out. He's not like Judas, he's certainly not a traitor. So what's the problem then? Well, this is the second question I suppose we have to ask. Is Peter's denial of Jesus a product of anger and humiliation? That seems like perhaps a more obvious conclusion. When we struggle with anger and humiliation, we feel like our our image has been slighted in some way, a reputation tarnished. People are having a go uh, at us for some failing that we have. What we automatically do as human beings is we deny the truth of our reality. We fail to come to terms with what's really happening, with our inadequacies, with our failures. Um, I'm sure everyone's aware of, of cases of Holocaust denial. And I mean, it's, it's shocking for most of us just to, to think, how is it that someone could genuinely question the historical reality of an event that claimed at least 6 million Jewish lives? Not to, me- not, not to mention the millions of um, gypsies, homosexuals, uh, Slavic people... Uh, who were also caught up in this dragnet that the Nazis drew around Europe. I mean, we have relatives, close relatives, baby parents, more likely grandparents or great-grandparents, that actually took part in this war to help eradicate this evil that was being rolled out across Europe. And yet we have People descended from some of those very uh, service people, soldiers who went and fought in in World War II. We have some people now in our midst who genuinely question the historical reality of what happened. Uh, The most famous um, academic is, I think, a guy called David Irving. There's been a film made about it um, not too long ago, looking at how people challenged his alternative account of history. The big question it raises, though, is not so much, can we you know, ascertain whether this was a historical reality? You can. You can tour the camps, you can talk to the survivors, you can read the, the first-hand accounts, you can go through the detailed evidence in the archives that the Nazis kept that was meticulously preserved, with a sort of ruthless efficiency. I think if there's a historical reality that is really just, in the 20th century, that is just beyond, really. It's the Holocaust. You can't inflict a trauma of that magnitude on an entire continent and then say, well, maybe there's not enough evidence to prove it. Okay, so let's just say for a moment, there's just no question, really, about the historical reality. Did it happen? It did. Without a doubt. Our our tougher question, our bigger question, is how is it that people question the reality of this event? What is it psychologically that that gets them to a point where they can say, this is a conspiracy theory, it's a cover-up, it never really happened this way? I came across an intriguing um, article, and I'm sorry, the, the psychologist's name, which is David C... I think. Um, it's just cut off there. But anyway, he has these three points to make. When people challenge the truth of their reality, right, the, the, sort of the, the, the historical reality around them, what's going on, things that can be easily um, understood, comprehended, and processed, when they go and doubt it, when they question it in a profound way, like the example of a Holocaust tonight, he says there are three possible psychological explanations you could give. The first is that they have a deep desire for understanding and certainty, particularly that last word, certainty. They don't like it when there are loose ends. The second thing is the desire for control and security. These people are often deeply insecure about something where they, they feel like they don't, don't have that control, they don't have that uh, security. And then the third point, the desire to maintain a positive self-image. Often the people that have perpetuated these uh, denial myths and, and, and stories are people that have had a personal history in which they've been slighted, they've been belittled, um, they've failed in some spectacular way. And they are struggling to regain some sense of standing in the world, some sense of uh, self-esteem and respect. Now, it's just a psychologist's opinion, but it is one that's quite widely, I think, accepted now. And it's true, because we see this happening all the time. People are challenging the status quo in terms of what we believe about the world all the time. There are conspiracy conspiracy theories abounding. And amongst younger people, this, this number is growing significantly. Is Peter a Holocaust denier? No. Is he a conspiracy theorist? No. But I think what this sort of psychological observation says about someone in Peter's situation is that there are these very simple base motives that make us question our reality, question the truth of our reality. And 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 and, and, and really make it impossible for us to admit to the struggle that we're going through. Um, so I think to try and understand Peter a bit better here, is Peter's denial of Jesus due to a sense of anger and humiliation? Almost certainly. He's done everything he could to save the life of his best friend, his master, and his teacher. And he's come up short. And he watches over this evening, this long night. A train wreck in the making. Have you ever watched an accident, a serious car accident or something like that happening? It does feel like it's in slow motion. In that moment, you're watching it all happening at sort of a quarter of the speed of what it normally might, might happen in. And yet it's usually happening incredibly quickly in reality. And he's watching this and it's out of his grasp. He has no control over it. He's powerless. And yet he stays. He stays. Why does he stay? He's not not afraid. Not in the conventional sense. not afraid of death. He would rather die, I think, after this night than carry on living with the humiliation and shame he's, he's got to deal with. And he's drawn like a moth to the flame. He can't escape the orbit of Jesus. He goes in there, as we read in this passage, he goes in there, um, and it seems like it's John who's kind of, uh, oops, uh, vaguely referred to as being the person who knew the high priest, uh, Annas. And John gets him in to this inner sanctum where Jesus is being held and being questioned by the high priest. And the slave girl, first of all, says, you know, aren't you one of them? And he says, no, no, I'm not. And then these soldiers and slaves who are standing around a fire. you know, The second and third times he denies Jesus, he says, he says to them, you know, no, no, I, I don't know him. I, I have nothing to do with him. And yet, why is he there? The anger and humiliation isn't enough to drive him away. But he's not prepared to identify with Jesus. He's not prepared to associate his name with the name of Jesus. So why is Peter a failure? I love this quote from C.S. Lewis. Courage is not simply one of the virtues, but the form of every virtue at the testing point, which means at the point of highest reality. Okay, he's, Peter is, is courageous in the conventional sense. But what Jesus is asking for is a courage that goes beyond the kind that Peter's prepared to display. It's an impossible kind of courage. It's humanly impossible to live with this kind of uh, level of virtue. And Peter hasn't, Peter hasn't understood that yet. He sees only what he tried to do and failed in doing. But there is something that Jesus is calling Peter, like the rest of the disciples as well, and us too, to do. He's calling us into a a form of um, courage, highest sort of realization of any virtue. But he does so... making very clear that we can't do it in our own strength, that we can't do it without his help. And it's going to look a particular way as well. So for Peter on that fateful night, courage meant being prepared to live and die for the cause, but that wasn't enough. It isn't enough. It's not enough to put yourself out there and be ready to be humiliated. To risk your life even. That's not enough sounded impossible before. I'm sure it's sounding even more so now. No, the requirement is even greater than that. Because Peter didn't understand that the way in which we are to live and die for the cause is the, the crucial thing here. The way we live and die for our cause, for our God, is what defines us as Christians. It's not enough that you get out there with a protest you know, and a banner and, and you go and you walk around with your placard and you say things and you shout things. Maybe there's time for that. But Peter, he was ready to do all of that. He was going to be a vocal, you know, active, out there kind of Christian. You see, the way is what it's all about. This is why you passionately, you know, deeply, principally disagree with abortion. You can't go and bomb an abortion clinic. Because you deny the very Lord and Saviour who values that, that unborn life. We can't do what we want in order to, to come up with the ends that we're after. You know, the means um, are not justifiable because we have... A greater end. The Christian life, gospel message, is about every moment. It's not about where we're ending up. Just you know, that's important, but it's about every moment. And so I go back to John 13. I guess to, to really illustrate this point, Jesus says to them, as he's leading up to the to the warning, the prediction about his own denial uh, by by Peter. He says this to the the disciples after Judas has um, has left the room. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. new commandment. Jesus doesn't do this anywhere else. He summarizes commandments. Love the Lord your God, you know, with everything. Love your neighbor. But this is a new commandment. It must mean something then. Martin Luther King Jr. said this, and here's a guy who is qualified to say it. Love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. He was assassinated, attempting to do the very thing that Jesus commanded in John 13. To love, but not simply tolerate the dysfunction and the chaos. He was going to love in order to transform that situation, dysfunction and chaos. And that's what we're called to do, every moment of every day. It isn't enough to just believe the right things. It's not enough just to say, I'm prepared to give everything. If you don't do it in the way that Jesus commanded us, then you basically you're a, a, a clashing cymbal and, um, and, a, and a sounding gong, as Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 13. Without the love of Christ compelling and motivating you, in your everyday decisions and your actions. You are just a whole lot of hot air. You're just a swinging sword, recklessly lashing out, trying to make some sort of change, some sort of difference in your world. He paid, he paid the ultimate price. He was assassinated in the late 60s. But he walked the talk and he loved, and he preached love, and he never stopped it yet. This, uh, this quote here by Dr. Michael Wells, an amazing man who's now with the Lord. Um, very close family friend. He wrote, We will only give up on ourselves when we have exhausted every other conceivable resource. It is not until a man refuses to trust himself that he will begin to trust God. When we come to the end of our line, the end of our rope, the end of our tether, and we're completely exhausted from the effort of trying to live up to whatever it is that we thought we were supposed to live up to, it is there that God meets us. And he says, I'm ready. I'm glad you've reached the end of your line. Now let's start walking together. And Peter says this, and this is the, the final, final passage I just wanted to end with. He says, says this in his epistle, chapter 3, this is at nine. This is Peter writing not long before he is going to meet the Lord as well in heaven. He's going to be crucified, according to um, early church historians, upside down in Rome under the directive of Nero, the Emperor Nero. Peter, a, a leader, a representative of a church that is being blamed, it's, it's a scapegoat for all the, the failings of a corrupt regime, he's going to be a symbol of sacrifice. But he will not go the same way as his Lord and Master. He will not die the way that his Saviour did. Apparently, according to the story that uh, the Origin gives, He said, I'm not worthy to die the same way, and so they crucified him him upside down. If that isn't failure in a worldly sense, what is? To be crucified was the most humiliating way you could be executed in Roman times. Crucified upside down was a joke. And yet Peter goes willingly. But he goes with love in his heart for his persecution. And think of that bombastic, you know, reckless. Throw yourself in to any situation kind of guy, Peter, from the you know the earlier stories in the gospels. And contrast that with this. Many years later, as he knows his death is probably not far away, saying things like Do not repay evil with evil. Don't go and cut people's ears off with swords. Don't, you know, repay insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you are called so that you may inherit a blessing. When your spouse, when your neighbor, when your workmate, when your child, when your parent, your friend insults you, what's the first thing we're called to do? Admit that we can't love them back in our own strength and accept Christ's help. We are all failures. We will always be failures. And we have to accept that. We don't celebrate failure itself, we celebrate what comes as a result of failure. The opportunity to take up Christ's invitation. What is the symbol? And it was great hearing Mel share about this, um, wherever she's gone, somewhere in the back. Um, you know, growing up in the Baptist church, the cross, oh, um, The cross being up the front, you know, so symbolic. I know we can't worship a cross, but it is a powerful, powerful symbol of failure. And yet it is in that failure that we're victorious. We're not going to celebrate sin, we're not going to celebrate our weakness in the sense that it will only ever lead to death. Christ stepped in through the cross and in that failure that we experience and the seeming failure that he experienced we discover irony. Incredible paradox. I know I'm going over time here, but I'm just going to tell you very finely this story. Nicky, my brother's best mate, he lived his life with passion. He lived it humbly. He was... Truly a remarkable guy. You know, we can say this about people when they've gone, but people would have said that in a heartbeat when he was still around. You always knew that when you saw Nicky, there were going to be fun times, you would feel completely at ease in your own skin. That he was going to make you better as a result of having been in his company. When he was 23, he was overseas in Portugal. He was following his dreams, you know, doing doing the things that he loved. Working over there, and he was in a car one night with some guys. They were going through a mountain pass. And that car went over the edge. Everyone thought, why? So much potential, so much promise. And I can only think of Peter as he watched Jesus being nailed to that cross. And the thought going through his mind could have been. But in that life, in that life, there was everything Peter and the disciples needed and that failure that seeming failure there was cleared the way for them to know the very promises I'm going to pray and as I do if the band want to make their way up pray Heavenly Father we thank you We thank you that we don't have to struggle anymore. If we have been struggling, Lord, we want to give it to you. We want to try and remember to do that every morning, Lord, that we wake up in every moment of crisis, in every instance where we are so stretched beyond our capacity, the point of breaking. We want to give that brokenness to you, Lord. And we don't want to judge or condemn anybody else that goes through that struggle. We want to speak life into that situation. Beginning by loving them. Lord, we know this is only possible because you failed on our behalf. You went on a cross. You were nailed to it. And everyone thought that was that's the end of the story. The failure is the end. But it was in that failure, Lord, showed us that only then can Your power truly take effect. We would not be able to celebrate here, Lord. We would not be able to fellowship and look forward to the hope and the promise You've given us if it hadn't been for that apparent failure on the cross. Lord, help us to die each day to self let your life be our resurrection life the life that transforms pray this in your name